Hey, PolicyCast listeners, I'm Matt Cadwallader, and we're going to get started with Ed Glazer in just a moment. But before we do, I just wanted to let you know that for the next few months, PolicyCast will be going on a summer hiatus, and this will be our last episode until the fall. That being said, PolicyCast couldn't exist if it weren't for you, and we don't want to lose you over the summer. So if you'd like to continue to get the latest public policy perspectives from Harvard Kennedy School and beyond, you can visit hkspolicycast.org and sign up to be notified upon our return. Thank you for listening, and have a great summer. Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we have with us Ed Glazer, the Fred and Eleanor Glimp Professor of Economics at Harvard University, who also serves as the director of the Taubman Center for State and Local Government and the Rappaport Institute of Greater Boston. He also writes a column for the Boston Globe. Ed, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for talking to me. So you recently published a paper entitled A Nation of Gamblers, Real Estate Speculation and American History. It analyzes the historic boom and bust cycle of the real estate market. What got you interested in looking at this and what were your findings? Well, I started working on housing probably about 15 years ago before the boom in in the U.S. housing markets of of, uh, the early years of the last decade and certainly before the bust of the late years of the last decade. And, of course, uh, we saw during that period the entire American economy and a great deal of policy discussion come out of this enormous swing in housing prices. Normally, when housing markets go up by about a dollar over a five-year period, they go down 32 cents over the next five-year period. They mean revert, to use the statistical language. Um, Over the period 2001 to 2011, for every dollar that a housing market went up over between 2001 and 2006, it went down about 95 cents between 2006 and 2011. So it was an amazing storm that came and went, leaving enormous wreckage in its wake. Now, there was variation across the U.S. in terms of which places experienced the boom and which places didn't. So, for example, many of the markets of the central United States were relatively flat. For example, Dallas and Houston experienced relatively little change in their housing markets over the entire time period. Um, the boom was concentrated in warmer areas. It was concentrated on the, on the coasts. And it was concentrated in urban cores. Um, but after several years of studying the this current event, I decided I really needed to bring in some more data points uh, and try to understand what was similar and what was different between this event and the 200 years of land bubbles and and real estate bubbles that had preceded it. What what was different? (laughs) Well, I think the most striking difference is that uh, historically land bubbles were tied to fundamental uncertainty about the path of the U.S. And it is very hard to figure out any equivalent fundamental uncertainty uh, today. So in my paper, I looked at nine housing bubbles, including the the most recent one, starting in the colonial period with the bankruptcy of Robert Morris, the financier of the revolution, the first superintendent of finances under the Articles of Confederation, who ended up in jail as a result of his bankruptcy because of speculating on frontier land on a spectacular scale. Mm -hmm. But if you think about during this time period, I mean, where he was buying just enormous millions and millions of acres of land at incredibly low prices, it was really unclear whether or not this land would pay off or not. It was—it certainly didn't seem like a crazy bet at this time period. Um, it depended upon how quickly America would move westward, how easily transportation access would open up to the frontiers of the, of the U.S. Uh, at the end of the day, he ended up losing his shirt. But um, 
in the long run, his purchases look wise. If he had been able to hold out for another 10 years, he would have made a fortune. Um, so it certainly wasn't a, a crazy bet at the time period. And then as you roll forward through the land bubble of the late 18-teens, for example, or the Iowa land boom of the first years of the 20th century, or the urban bubbles in Chicago and Los Angeles when these cities were just forming, or the urban land bubble of the 1920s in New York. Um, all of these things seemed relatively sensible uh, at the time in the sense that there, were, there was really great fundamental uncertainty. Um, the current bubble had much less of that. It was hard to know what the real what the real shocks were. That was probably the largest difference. But of course, there are many similarities because we've always been a nation of gamblers, and real estate speculation is part of what we do. It is the democratic asset in the sense that uh, vast numbers of Americans actually own in this and are either long in the asset, or if you're a renter, you're short housing because at some point in time you're going to have to buy it. So we're all involved in these markets, and and that's I think one of the reasons why these speculative manias are so common. So what was behind uh, the uncertainty that bred the, this latest Great Recession? Well, um, so again, one of the themes of this paper is that buying, and this was true during the great, the, the recent Great Bust as well, buyers are, are all justified by reasonable models at the boom. There's a, a fashion in the intellectual history of speculative manias to make fun of of past buyers and to sort of act as if how could you possibly have been so insane as to pay uh, the prices that the Chicago speculators were paying in 1837. But when I look at the data, I see something different. They were wrong, but they weren't crazy. Um, and that was, I think, true in 2005 and 2006 as well. There were legitimate models, if you will, mental models, that could justify the prices that were paid. So, for example, in Las Vegas in 2004, 2005, buyers were able to look at prices in nearby Los Angeles and say to themselves, well, uh, my lifestyle isn't that different here in Las Vegas, the climate isn't that different, and yet I'm paying vastly less than I would be around Los Angeles, so surely this purchase makes makes good sense. Um, that's historically how Los Angeles sold itself in the 1880s as well, is by comparing the price of downtown Los real estate in Los Angeles with San Francisco, with, with Minneapolis, with other American cities of the West, and noting that you know even during the height of the speculative mania of the 1880s, the prices still were lower than other key cities. So I think that's one of one of the key points, is that, that the um, there always are mental mo models that justify these things. And I think one of the, there are two, I think, critical implications for this, one of which is for ordinary buyers, you should be particularly wary because reasonable models can justify justify prices uh, fairly readily. And the people who bought in the past weren't weren't obviously fools. And even if you're doing something that isn't obviously foolish, you may be making a colossal mistake with long-run implications for your uh, for your wealth. Um, the other, uh, I think, implication of this is that there there is a mistake that is um, ubiquitous, and it's underappreciating the importance of supply to drive long-run prices. You know, Alfred Marshall, the great 19th century English economist, had a dictum, which is that in the long run, the costs of supply dictate the prices of commodities. Uh, that has proven to be true over and over again. And 
there was some uncertainty about supply in Las Vegas in the 2004 to 2006 period. There was some discussion of the United States government restricting the supply of, of land sales. But really, any realistic look at the amount of desert land America has suggests that the price of this commodity should be very, very low, just because we have enormous amounts of it. And as a result, if the price of the land is low and if permitting is easy, you really should have expected prices in Las Vegas to be fairly close to construction costs, which they had been for 40 years prior to 2001. Uh, and then for a very brief period, they became untethered from the cost of supply. And of course, they came crashing right back down again to the cost of supply, which is where they remain rooted today. If people were acting rationally, and uh, and still we had this enormous bust. What 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 could possibly have changed that that model? I mean, what could have been done to avoid the situation? Well, um, we don't fully understand speculative manias. We understand that people have get these ideas. The ideas aren't crazy, uh, but they are wrong. Uh, certainly, ex post, uh, and this creates challenges for public policy. I think one of the beauties is that, in, as in many cases, you actually don't need to fully understand a phenomenon to suggest reasonable policy responses to it. The classic example that's often given is the case of, of icebergs and uh, policies towards ship safety, right? We don't really fully need to understand where and when icebergs are going to show up to suggest that people have a, enough lifeboats to actually protect against them. Um, that same analogy, I think, works in the case of housing markets as well. We don't need to fully understand housing bubbles to suggest that we want a certain amount of prudential uh, checks to limit the downsides of, of bus. So uh, there are several that uh, I've proposed at various points in time, one of, some of which concern the safety of the, the banking system. So one thing is to consider the value of real estate assets not at the current market prices, but at some longer run average price, um, which will restrict the ability to basically lend based on current real estate, which is high relative to its long run values. And the fact that housing prices mean revert justifies this, because you should expect if a place has been having a large run up that it will then drop down in the future and you should make banks hold more capital as, as a result. Uh, a second push is for changes to the way that we impact consumers. So we've currently uh, instituted a set of policies which encourage consumers to borrow, uh, to bet on the vicissitudes of the housing market, most obviously with a home mortgage interest deduction, which essentially subsidizes uh, massive amounts of borrowing, but also with policies that make it easier to have lower and lower down payments, for example. This started in the 1930s and then was uh, pushed further with the Veterans Administration uh, mortgages in the post-war period. Um, and of course, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are the two institutions that, that promulgate this above all. Now, it turns out it's, it's fairly easy to think about ways to rewrite this that would limit the risks that people take. You can limit the maximum value of a mortgage that can be deducted upon. Uh, you can tie that maximum to the amount of income the person has, so saying that they can't take a mortgage that is some more than some multiple of their income or that the um, expenses of handling the mortgage can't be more than 25% of their income if they want to deduct it. So you, you're, they're free to do what they want to do. It's not that you're limiting your freedom, but that you are limiting the mortgage subsidy to what you think is a prudential, uh, prudential mortgage. And obviously, you can also make sure that Freddie and Fannie don't get in the business of doing loans that are too large or loans that aren't covering more than 80% of the value of the home, or even loans where there are second mortgages that will cover that other 20% that you have to be you know, very clear about that. So, so there are a number of things that we can do to make the system safer, even if we don't fully understand these bubbles, just because because we recognize that these booms and busts 
do occur. So the idea is basically to kind of put in regulations to stop them from happening rather than to try and set up a, uh, I guess, some kind of social safety uh, net when they do happen. But, but it's it's not just about s- stopping them from happening, because I sort of take as given that they're always going to happen. I mean, mm-hmm. Many of these land bubbles occurred long before we had any major federal involvement in housing markets. Uh, it's rather that we encourage people to take less risk on them. So it's not that we are um, sure that we're going to stop bubbles by doing this. But if someone always has 20% equity in the house, they're less likely to be underwater ex post. If you have leaned against people borrowing excessive amounts, they're going to be at less risk following the downturn. Uh, And we don't necessarily need new regulations. We already have bank regulations. We already have rules regarding how we evaluate bank capital. This would be just a tweak of the rules. We already have a home mortgage interest deduction, and we're not going to regulate what people can buy. We're just limiting the extent to which the deduction can be used for particularly risky mortgages. We're not, you know, introducing some new entity like Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. We're just scaling back what its mission statement is. And I think there are many reasons why Fannie and Freddie need to be reined in in terms of their risks, both in terms of encouraging individual buyers and also their risks to taxpayers. Do you think these are politically feasible goals? I mean, especially if you're not introducing regulation, it seems like something that would be palatable to both parties. Um, I don't think they're totally unreasonable. They're certainly less unreasonable than many other things that I have I have proposed over, over the years. You know, one of, I think, the jobs of the academic in the public sphere is to say things, though, that are not immediately politically feasible with the idea that you change the discussion over the long haul. Um, touching the home mortgage interest deduction is always difficult. Mm-hmm. There is more of an incentive and interest in doing it right now than in other time periods because tweaking deductions is seen as a way of generating more revenues in a world in which the basic tax rates seem to be relatively fixed. So I think we have more openness. Certainly, reforms of Freddie and Fannie and financial market regulation, you know, those are certainly on the table. Those are There's no question that those things are, are happening, and they may very well happen sometime soon. So I, I think those are eminently in the realm of the politically feasible. The mortgage interest deduction reforms are more difficult. But this is the most promising period to discuss these reforms uh, than any I've, I've lived through previously. Professor Ed Glazer, thanks so much for being on PolicyCast today. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to PolicyCast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. More information can be found at hkspolicycast.org.